the analogy I often use is that the time it takes a person to blink is about a half of a second. And in that half a second, our laser has fired 5,000 times and illuminated 30,000 spots on the ground. And from each one of those spots, somewhere between one and 10 photons are reflected back up to the spacecraft. We broke some things along the way. But ultimately, the way you overcome any of these things is with, with your team, it's with people. Welcome in to another episode of the Professional Profiles podcast that uncovers the time-tested wisdom for the next generation. Join me, a forward-thinking team, as I engage in insightful conversations with industry titans, revealing the invaluable ingredients that pave the way to achieving remarkable success. Thank you so much for talking with me today. I really appreciate your time. No problem. It's nice to, nice to be with you on the podcast. Great. So I'm just going to jump right into it. What's your position called now? What do you do at NASA? So I've got two positions here at NASA. I'm the project scientist for the ICESat-2 mission, and that's a laser altimeter up in space. And about a year ago, I also became the deputy director for the Earth Sciences Division here at Goddard. And the Earth Sciences Division at Goddard has about 1,350 people that really span the whole breadth of Earth science, observations, modeling, integration of data across missions, ideation. I'm thinking about what new measurements do we really need to answer the most pressing science problems of our day. It's a really cool place that way that you really have that full spectrum of capabilities here in, uh, here in one place. Could you talk about the ISAT too, what y'all do with it and how it works? Yeah, sure. Sure. So, so I got involved with ISAT too, really close to the start of it. In uh, 2008, I was a uh, yeah, research professor in the geology department up at the University of Vermont. And I got a, an email from a NASA program manager who worked in the cryospheric sciences. And that, that's kind of what my field had been, studying glaciers and ice sheets, places like Greenland, Antarctica, what have you. And they were talking about and asked me about a new mission they were starting called ISAT-2 that, as the name suggests, was really geared towards measuring changes in what we call the cryosphere those glaciers, ice sheets, as well as sea ice, um, and characterizing how they're changing through time. And I wasn't a remote sensing expert by any stretch of the imagination. And I said, are you sure I'm the right guy for this? I don't really know anything about satellites. And they said, look, you know, we're NASA. We know a lot about satellites, it turns out. But what you'd be able to bring is an understanding of how ice sheets move, how they grow, how they change through time and how well we would need to measure those changes to have a useful impact on our understanding of the world. And I was like, oh yeah, that's something I could probably help with. So I came down here in, started in 2009 actually. And at that point, ISAT-2 was just a design on paper. And I was with the mission all the way through its development, testing, and then the launch in 2018. And what it does is it's a laser altimeter. So no kidding, it's lasers in space sending out little pulses of light that travel down from the spacecraft to the Earth, bounce off the Earth, and go back up to the spacecraft again. And the whole trick of it is timing how long it takes that light to go down and back again really well. It turns out light moves really fast. It actually moves at the speed of light. It's no joke. So you need a really good clock to say, all right, laser pulse left, start the clock. Laser pulse came back, stop the clock. And using that travel time, as along with information about where that laser beam was pointed, little to the left, little to the right, and where you are in the orbit, are you over 
Maryland? Are you over Greenland? Are you somewhere in South America or somewhere in between? Those three things let you figure out the height of the earth pretty much everywhere. How long does light take to go? What direction are you pointed? And where are you in the orbit? Those three pieces. And with that, we've been on orbit since September of 2018. And the mission's going great. We're measuring height changes all over the planet, not only for ice sheets, glaciers, and sea ice, but also forests and fields and oceans and buildings, urban environments, what have you. We can measure heights and height changes and all of that. So what does that data take away? What are the takeaways that you get from that data? Yeah, totally. So the takeaways from ISAT 2 uh, and the whole reason the mission existed was to measure changes. First, I'll just talk about the ice sheets because I love the ice sheets. Measuring changes in the ice sheets. Where are they getting taller? So that is the surface is, is uh, going up. Where are they losing ice such that the surface is going down and getting lower? And how fast are those changes happening? And the reason that's important is because those changes in the ice sheet directly impact sea level. When ice sheets lose ice, goes off to the ocean, melts, and sea level goes up. Um, so that's the main motivation. And, and we're able to watch those changes now with ISAT2 in, in a, a level of detail we've never been able to do before. Over sea ice, so back up a step and say that sea ice is frozen ocean water. Turns out when it gets cold in the southern ocean around Antarctica, water freezes, even though it's salty ocean water. And that floating ice is called sea ice, both around Antarctica as well as up in the Arctic Ocean. Now, for a long time, we've been able to measure the extent of sea ice just by using cameras. How much ice is there around Antarctica? How much ice is there in, up in the Arctic Ocean? So we have time series of that extent and how it changes all the way back to about 1979. But what we haven't been able to do for sea ice is measure the third dimension. How thick is that sea ice? So the way it works with, with ISAT2 and with a laser is you measure the height of the floating ice. Uh, and you compare that with the height of the ocean uh, that the ice is floating in. And that height difference is called the freeboard. And it's the same kind of concept of how your ice cube floats in a glass of water. Uh, the height of that ice sticking up out of the ocean lets you calculate how thick is that ice. Um, and that's something we also haven't been able to do before in any great detail. And ISAT2 is really good at it, it turns out, because we designed it to do that. So yeah, so the take home from those is that I hope you're sitting down, but the ice sheets are in fact losing mass and the sea level is in fact going up. And we're able to look at where in Antarctica and Greenland those changes are most pronounced. How fast are they how fast are they losing mass, losing ice, and and how fast is that changing? So in a nutshell, that's what it's all about. So earlier you mentioned you worked in the field in Greenland and Antarctica. Mm -hmm. What are some of the most remarkable discoveries and findings that you found and learned? with your time there? Yeah. So throughout my graduate career and my early years after my PhD, I was involved in a number of field projects, both in Greenland and Antarctica. Some of the most memorable ones or most significant ones, maybe in, in Antarctica, I participated in six different traverses over the surface of the ice sheet. Now, what we were doing with those was basically it was a mobile science lab. There was anywhere between, depending on the year, between about four or five of us and about 12 of us driving slowly over the surface of the ice sheet, taking measurements along the way with a variety of instrumentation, both GPS to measure the ice sheet height, 
ice-penetrating radars to measure the thickness of the ice, and then doing science when we were stopped, like putting out weather stations or collecting snow or ice samples for later chemical analysis. And one of the really interesting ones I was on was a partnership with the Norwegians that was in 2007 and eight, where we traveled from the Norwegian station called Troll that's on the coast of Antarctica, just south of Cape Town, South Africa. Uh, we traveled all the way over the ice sheet to the South Pole by one route. And then the next year, we traveled back to the Troll station with those same traverse vehicles via a different route. And that was a part of the ice sheet that people hadn't really visited much, if at all. There was one traverse through there in the 19, late 1960s, but that's like an area the size of the continental U.S. that had been driven across you know, just once. So some of that ice thickness data we collected, surface temperatures, and then the, the snow and ice samples were really unique in that, yeah, you can't get that data any other way. Does the ISAT 2, does that kind of take the place of the field work that you were doing with measuring the thickness and the size? Some of it. It definitely does some of it. From the vantage point of space, you get to see the whole Earth, including all of Greenland and most of Antarctica. But what it's doing is measuring the surface elevation. And it doesn't tell you about the thickness of the ice sheets because the green laser light we use really does bounce off the snow surface. For sea ice, you can get at the thickness by looking at those height differences that we talked about, the height of the floating ice versus the height of the ocean. But for the ice sheet, what we're doing is just measuring the height over and over and over again and measuring how that changes through time by comparing you know, measurements in 2018, 2019, 2020, 2021, and so on. So yes, it does take the place of some of that, but other measurements you can't, you currently can't get any other way than just going there. Taking ice core samples or snow samples, you pretty much got to have boots on the ground, so to speak, to collect that data. So I'd imagine by being the first people there since 1960, there must be some interesting stories that happened when you were there. Well, Are totally. Totally. Before we went, actually, we reached out to to a number of those folks who had been on those prior traverses. They were, well, back then they were all men because women weren't allowed to do field research in Antarctica in the 1960s. And a number of the folks were, were still around and were happy to come out and, and meet with us and talk about their experiences and any advice they had for us. And that was really cool because, of course, we were doing this in 2007, 2008, 2009, and they had been there you know, 40 years earlier. Turns out there's a lot of things that have changed in 40 years. We had a number of women on the team. I think our team was half women, actually. And that was a big difference than back in their day. But also the technology is just, I mean, I hope, again, hope you're sitting down. Technology is way different now than it was in the 1960s. We have satellite phones and stuff like that. And also really sensitive radars and weather stations and all of that sort of thing that, you know, they just didn't have access to. That said, those were some long field seasons. We were driving. Oh gosh, how long were those? I think they were, well, they varied, but many of them were around 2000 kilometers and you're traveling 2000 kilometers or, or 1200 miles, basically at the speed of a riding lawnmower. Like if you, for some reason fell off, you could just walk and catch up again. Cause these things really don't go that fast. So it's, yeah. So it, it's made for some long seasons, but, but yeah, certainly some interesting ones. What were some of the most significant challenges you faced during the development of the ISAT-2 and how did you guys overcome them? Yeah. So anytime you're embarking on one of these satellite projects, you know, doing something in space, it's hard, right? That's the, 
the pithy thing to say is, look, space is hard. And we on ISAT2 had the advantage that many of our team members had worked on laser altimetry missions before, right? We weren't the first one. Our design was very new. The prior laser altimeters typically had a single beam and the laser pulsed relatively slowly, you know, 10, 10 or 50 times a second. ISAT2 has six beams and our laser pulses 10,000 times a second. Another complicating factor for us was our measurement technique, where it's called photon counting, where, yes, you're sending out a whole bunch of laser light, but only a handful of those photons from that transmitted laser pulse make it back to the spacecraft. And you can think of them as ping pong balls that you're throwing from the spacecraft down off the surface of the Earth and back again. Um, But with 10,000 laser shots a second in each of the six beams, Um, The analogy I often use is that the time it takes a person to blink is about a half of a second. And in that half a second, our laser has fired 5,000 times and illuminated 30,000 spots on the ground. And from each one of those spots, somewhere between one and 10 photons are reflected back up to the spacecraft. So in the time it took to blink, you know, we've made 300,000 measurements of the surface of the earth. And that data flow both on the spacecraft as well as dealing with it here on the ground. That was a challenge. Um, making a laser that would be able to, to generate that many pulses of laser light that reliably, that was a challenge and we broke some things along the way. But ultimately, the way you overcome any of these things is, is with, with your team. It's with people. It's, I get to do this interview and other interviews like it, but this isn't something that I just did by myself. We had at our peak almost a thousand people working on the ISAT 2 mission and each of the different subsystems and components. And when something would go wrong, which it would, you had the best people in the world on your team to address that and to figure out what happened and what are some possible ways forward. I remember when we broke one of our lasers in testing, and that was, you know, a sad day and you hate to see things break, but it was the the headquarters earth science directors named Mike Freilich was in that role at the time. And Mike said, look, you'd much rather be on the ground wishing you were in space than to be in space wishing you were on the ground. Cause only one of those two situations you're going to do something about. He's like, good. You broke it on the ground. Now fix it. Okay, let's go fix it. And we did. You changed the design of that part that had failed and tested the new design, built it and tested it again. And uh, yeah, it's your team that's going to save you. These are just people, you know, doing these things and having the right people in the right place. That's, that makes all the difference. So as the deputy director of the Earth Science Division at NASA Goddard, is it Goddard? It is, yeah. NASA Goddard. Okay. Yeah. And I'll just pause on that point one second and okay. say, look, there's 10 different NASA centers. There's, there's Johnson and there's Glenn and there's NASA Ames and there's Kennedy and there's JPL and Langley and I'm sure I'm forgetting some, but NASA Goddard is right here in the uh, Washington, D.C. metro area. We're just outside the Beltway. Uh, So within the Earth Sciences Division, ISAT-2 is only one of eight on-orbit missions that we um, operate, collect the data from, process that data, use it for interesting science, and, and get that data out into the hands of university researchers and end users and farmers in some cases and other agencies who use that data to to, yes, learn about how the earth works and at times also use it in operational context, whether it's weather forecasting or it's 
making decisions about coastal processes. And are you going to build that new bridge here or are you going to move it somewhere else due to changes in sea level or changes in ground subsidence? So we operate missions. But we also conceive of, develop, and build new missions. ISAT-2 is a great example. It started as a design on not on a piece of paper because it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the 1970s anymore. We had computers then, but it was PowerPoint slides, right? You kind of start with with a concept of here's what we want to measure, here's why we want to measure it, and here's how well we want to measure it, and you kind of go from there. So we do design, build, test instruments and spacecraft right here in in Greenbelt, Maryland. And in addition, then on the back end. We use all that data together. We have a few different modeling groups here that use those observations to understand how the Earth works as a system, whether that is in what we call reanalyses, taking a look at uh, what happened in the coupled Earth, ocean, ice, atmosphere system in the past, and how did that evolve through time using these measurements for calibration as well as looking forward. Another group focuses on what does this look like in 2050? What does it look like in 2080? And what uh, measurements might we need to help uh, reduce uncertainties in those forecasts? So the whole gamut that way. And I haven't really touched on that calibration or validation aspects. We have teams that make uh, instruments that fly on aircraft that underfly these satellites to help calibrate the data from space uh, by collecting similar data from an aircraft environment, or as I've done a number of times, Ground-based measurements. One of the ways we check on ISAT-2 is by comparing our measurements from space at the height of the ice sheet with GPS data that I and colleagues collected in 2018, 2019, and 2020 from the surface of the ice sheet. We went out and tracked vehicles and tractors with high-precision GPS and measured how high is this ice sheet and then compare that with data from space. So yeah, all different aspects of, of Earth sciences, but all generally revolving around remote sensing. So what's your main responsibility or what are your main responsibilities as the deputy director? Yeah, that's a good one. It's I've been in the role for about a year now and I'm still learning what my responsibilities are. Certainly it's in helping to guide those other missions. I work with the director of Earth Sciences, that's Dr. Dahlia Kirschbaum, and her background is in using remote sensing for disasters. So predicting things like landslides or floods or or severe storms or that sort of thing. And she was she really wanted somebody who had more mission experience on the hardware side of things and mission development to kind of complement her experience and how do you use these data in a decision-making context. So yeah, so I joined about a year ago as the deputy and mostly what I do is work with those other missions, either ones that are on orbit and having issues they need to talk through or would like a second opinion on, or those missions currently in various stages of development, either a proposal or a proposal that's been selected. And that mission is now moving on to to fabrication and test and that sort of thing. That's the biggest part of my portfolio, honestly, is working with various missions. But in addition, I do a lot of other things, mentoring a number of the early career, early and mid-career folks who you know seek some professional development guidance. I work with a number of those folks. Hiring. Turns out people retire occasionally and you need to understand what their roles are and how best can we you know, backfill for that person and find the right candidate to either pick up where they left off or in some cases kind of go in a new direction with that position. So I do a lot of time um, recruiting and interviewing and, and looking for candidates that way. And the other piece I'd mention is that 
I'm on the sciences side and hopefully I've convinced you that I'm not an engineer. I'm not, not a financial manager. I'm not a schedule manager or program manager, but all those other roles do exist here at Goddard in the other divisions. My responsibility and my expertise is in the sciences, but it's, it takes a village to pull one of these missions off and have it be successful like ISAT2 is. And so I work with colleagues in program management. Actually, the call I was just on before we started talking was on management issue in what we call Code 400, which is Flight Projects Division. Um, but what do we do? We work with the engineering teams, management teams, financial teams, all of that to make the whole picture work well. So what have you learned about leadership through that position? What I've learned about leadership in this position is that keeping in mind that I don't really know anything. One of the most important aspects of a leader that I've kind of encountered is listening, really getting to understand the, the issue someone is having or what they're trying to convey to you, whether it's a technical, a scientific, a personnel issue, a personal issue at times. So being a good listener is really important. And also being aware of your own limitations. It was, I think it's a truism that, well, or back up a step, said it was true for me, at least. I was never so smart as I, when I was 22 years old and I was in graduate school. I knew everything. I knew it. I knew it all. And I'd be happy to tell you about it. And then as you move through your career, you quickly realize that, no, you don't know it all. You know this little piece. And it turns out as you get more and more experience, you realize how little you actually do know really well. And for many leaders, you get that a little bit more humility through time, which lets you be a better listener and hopefully a more useful sounding board for scientific questions or technical issues or career choices or that sort of thing. I can tell you what worked for me, um, but that's really all I can tell you. And I'm aware of that. Um, so yeah, um, listening and having a good sense of what you do know and what you don't know, um, two important things. So you mentioned earlier that you help hire and interview people. What are you yeah. looking for with those interviews? Yeah. So you kind of have a couple of, of approaches when you're looking to fill a position. Um, in some cases, it's a position that the need is immediate. We need somebody to, to come in and, and run a lab, for example, or help with a data processing problem or a an algorithm development or whatever it is. And, and so in that case, you're looking for someone with the, yes, the necessary skills, you know, that they've either worked in this field, they published in this field, they have background in this particular field you're looking for. But second is, is interpersonal skills, the so-called soft skills, which I don't know why they're called soft skills, but whatever, that's what people call them. Your ability to work in a team, your ability to take feedback, your ability to, to modify your point of view or your thought process when presented with new information. Some people are either good at that or not so good at that. And if it's not a position with an immediate need, but it's a little more longer term, you're kind of looking for potential. And that's something I'm still learning how to do. I spent a, a, my first couple of years here wondering why I got hired for the job I was in as the, at that time, I was the deputy project scientist that I sat to. And I remember talking to to the guy that had hired me. His name was Waleed. And I was like, Waleed, I don't, I don't understand. What were you looking for? And how did you end up with me? And he said, look, have you hired a lot of project scientists before or deputy project scientists? And I'm like, no. He's like, well, I've hired a few. You got to give me a little bit of credit that I know what I'm looking for. And what he was looking for was some of that potential. So it was, I had been in some smaller leadership roles at that point and was able to lead small groups effectively at least in his estimation. He had seen me present a number of times at conferences, 
or smaller science meetings. And so he was noticing my communication ability, that I was able to listen and respond to questions and able to convey an idea or a result in a compelling or understandable way. And that's a really key thing for scientists, because if I'm just in my so-called ivory tower, you know, learning things about the world, but I'm not able to convey it or tell anybody else about it, then, you know, what the heck's the point? So you do, you need to be able to communicate both written as well as, as well as verbal. So those sorts of things. And that's the kind of stuff that I'm looking for as well when I'm going through resumes or talking to early career researchers, um, folks who just make the most of whatever opportunities they do have, whether they're you know smaller leadership roles or roles being led. Sometimes you manage downward, so to speak, to folks who are you're advising, but a lot of times you're managing upwards. You're talking to your next line supervisor or your project manager or whatever. You need to be able to communicate what you're finding, what your challenges are, and in some cases, what your proposed solutions are. Here's what I think we should do. So NASA is a federal agency. So our government is known to be very slow, and that's the stereotype. What makes NASA different? <laughs> when I was leaving Vermont, so I was at the University of Vermont in the geology department there, and a great little department. I think there were seven or eight faculty when I was there. And uh, you know, made the joke a number of times that I was, you know, moving to DC to go to work for this, you know, small, agile little startup. We're gonna make decisions fast, we're gonna learn fast, and we're gonna change fast. A uh, little startup called NASA, just me and you know 140,000 of my closest friends. Here at here at Goddard, there's altogether about 10,000 people, and it's so it's not a small institution by any stretch. And we are part of the federal government, and we're bound by the same regulations that govern any other federal agency, whether that's you know the U.S. Forest Service or Department of Health and Human Services. Take your pick. We all abide by the same rules and regulations that are set by Congress. So in some respects, we are not a very agile uh, workplace that way. Um, ISAT 2 was uh, a good 10 years from conception to launch. So I, I don't think speed or agility is really NASA's forte. Um, however, what we you know, compromise in, in speed and, and agility, I think we more than make up for in scientific rigor, in engineering excellence, and in, in making things that last. ISAT-2 just this week actually crossed 1.5 trillion laser shots since we launched. And a trillion is such a big number, even though I deal with big numbers all the time, it's hard to wrap your head around how big a trillion of something is. It's astounding, really. So we're at one and a half trillion. Some of these missions last on orbit for, you know, for over 20 years. One of the teams I was working with just this week work on the Terra satellite, T-E-R-R-A, and that launched in 1999, and it's still on orbit today, collecting all kinds of different data. They have a number of instruments on Terra, and that's just astounding to me. That's been up for almost 25 years now, and that's a really impressive achievement. It sounds a little, uh, it may sound a little silly, but NASA engineering, it's actually really good. But that does come at the expense of how fast you're willing to go. We do a lot of design, test, redesign, retest. You know, We want to get it right. I'm always mindful that here at NASA, we we work for you personally and for anybody who's listening. We're funded by taxpayers, and we do our best to be good stewards of taxpayer money. And really, <laughs> cutting corners is not really a thing here. You know, if something doesn't make sense or you have a test result that doesn't look right, people don't let go of that very easy. They're going to dig in on it until they figure out, look, here's what this means, or here's where this went wrong, or here's where it went right, because that happens a lot as well. So we're very thorough. 
And I think that's, in a lot of ways, that's to the benefit of everyone because you can make a measurement once and that's informative, right? You measure, let's say the height of the height of a tree or the height of a glacier, but you learn a lot more with what we call time series of data by repeating that measurement over and over again. And with our data from ISAT2 or imagery from Terra or what have you, take your pick of your favorite satellite, you can compare data that we collected in 2018 when we first launched with ISAT2 with data that was collected today and resolve height differences of just a centimeter or two because we have, we're that confident in our instrumentation and in our calibration and in our revisiting of that data over and over again to always be looking for problems always be uh, improving that data through time so that you really can look at a time series of data, in some cases stretching back to the 70s or 80s, and have confidence that what you're seeing are real changes on the surface of the earth or the height of the oceans or what have you. And it's not just some instrument artifact or it's not a, you know, just a quirk of the data processing. These changes are ongoing, they're verifiable, and you can take confidence in, in NASA data. That is one thing that we hear over and over again. There's a annual surveys of confidence in the government and some sectors of government, maybe people are less enthusiastic about, but NASA is seen as a trusted source of data, not only about earth, which is my sphere, but we also have other divisions that work on planetary missions or astrophysics missions like uh, the James Webb Space Telescope. And we take that trust of the public extremely seriously. That is, that is one of the, yeah, one of the most important things because we're here working for you. And we want to do the best job that we can. So using the data from the sea levels and from the ice amounts, mm -hmm. what is NASA projecting our climate to look like in the future? Yeah, that's a good one. Because the, the power in this kind of data is, like you say, making a projection or making a forecast. What does temperature or rainfall you know, look like in Iowa 40 years from now? And what is that going to mean for crops or crop yields or that sort of thing? And we have a group that does that. It's, uh, it's actually part of NASA Goddard, but it sits physically located up in New York City called GIS, the Goddard Institute for Space Studies. And that's the whole thing that they work on. Actually, it's funny. I was just talking to a colleague, Dr. Leslie Ott, and that I was going to be doing this interview. And, and one of the, the things that she left me with was that we can have a lot of confidence in those physical models. We can understand how ice changes, how ice melts, how sea level rises, how ground subsides, how winds move things around, how fires change our landscape. And we can model those things. We understand the physics. But the biggest uncertainty in all of this is people, is knowing what people are going to do 20 years from now. Are we still going to be emitting as much CO2 as we are right now? How much is it going to change? Is it going to get larger or smaller? What will our land use be? 20 years from now? Are we going to continue um, deforestation in the Amazon, which has a huge impact on many different parts of the earth system? Hard to say. So you can have the best model in the world. And we think we have among the best models in the world at understanding earth as a system. People are the hardest one to project. And so a lot of times you'll see these forecasts in 2100, you know, is our, our favorite benchmark. And there'll be a heavy line in the middle that's kind of our best guess of, let's say, you know, temperature in Austin, Texas. And there'll be some shaded region around it of the uncertainty. And that uncertainty is largely driven by what are people going to do? If you could tell me that, I could give you a much better answer on here's how much sea level is going to change or here's how precipitation is going to change or, or whatever variable you're interested in. 
So when people say NASA, I'm sure many of them go straight to rockets, which I know NASA is not just all about rockets. But I do have a question about rockets. So yeah. with the competition, I don't, I wouldn't call it competition, but with new companies such as SpaceX, what do you see in those companies and what is NASA doing with, either with those companies or competing? I'm just interested in that whole that whole atmosphere. Yeah, totally. It's a evolving space, right? For me, it comes back to what is the role of government and what, and for me personally, what's the role of government science or government earth science? Your particular example was about rockets that would take a payload like ISAT-2 from the earth up into orbit. And for years, NASA has been partnering with industry to buy those services. ISAT-2 was launched on a a rocket called a Delta II rocket. It was the last of the Delta II rockets. We were the 156th launch of that particular platform. And our version of the Delta II was provided to us. We bought it from a company called ULA, United Launch Alliance. Um, SpaceX is another great example. They've had some tremendous successes and really gone very quickly from a design for something like the Falcon 9 to I don't know how many launches they've had now. I lose track. Um, but some of that early development is incentivized and has been incentivized by various parts of the government. Um, yes, NASA, um, but also Department of Defense. They pay for many more rocket launches than we do. And so some of those early contracts to SpaceX that really helped them scale up and get through some of their growing pains were, yeah, were contracts from the government. I'm going to expand on the answer a little bit and talk a little bit more about Earth observation that for many years... Earth observation really was the domain of the government. There was nobody else doing that because there wasn't really a business case to be made for why on earth should we be flying cameras? But you fast forward into the early 2000s and you start getting companies that are flying their own their own Earth observation satellites, companies like Planet Labs or Maxar. And now you're using that data every day, even if you don't know you are. Anytime you open open your iPhone to look for directions or you're on uh, Google Maps or what have you, some of that data is government. It's from the Landsat series or it's from Terra, to go back to that example. But some of it's from private companies. And those private companies, yes, began with op- optical images, right, cameras. But now there's private companies as well that, that take radar data. They have space-borne radars that will help you do things like measure measure sea ice, or measure ground topography or what have you. And I actually had a call today with a startup company based in Florida that wants to commercialize LIDAR, that they feel like their business case is solid. They have venture capital lined up. They feel like they've got their arms around the technology and they were interested in partnering with NASA and with us here at Goddard who have such experience in LIDAR to help help their business get off the ground. And so ultimately it kind of gets to, well, what do you think of the role of government? Should the government be competing with industry or should we be doing the first of slash best of and helping transition some of those technologies out of the government into the private sector? You know, could well be, Charlie, that, you know, five years from now, you're going to work for one of these companies who's who wants to move into that realm and and figure out how do you take these one off kind of missions like ISAT 2 with its amazing laser altimeter? How do you scale that? I don't want to fly one of them. I want to fly a hundred of them. Um, what does that What does that look like? And that's really the kind of space that um, the private sector excels in. NASA, we do these, you know, first of, best of, um, but eventually, 
most of those measurement technologies do and should move into the private sector. So what is NASA honing in on in the future? Are there any different industries or specific places that NASA is going to allocate more resources to? The, it's kind of builds off the, the last question in a way of, of uh, kind of where are we going that way? Um, Earth observation as a field is changing a lot. There are, well, I'll back up a step and say there's a process that happens every 10 years called the Earth Science Decadal Survey that's run by the National Academy of Science. And they'll get hundreds of Earth scientists together and say, look, what should NASA, NOAA, the USGS, what should they be doing in space over the next decade? The last decadal survey was in 2017. We're just starting to gear up for the next decadal survey that'd be in 2027. And that guidance kind of becomes the roadmap for NASA Earth science for the next 10 years. The other science disciplines also have such surveys that that help guide their field as well on that decadal kind of timescale. So we're partway through the last decadal and, and several of those missions are now moving out of the design stage into the implementation stage of, all right, well, we know what we need to build. Let's go, let's go do it. And we're just talk, starting to talk about where NASA is going for the next 10 years for NASA Earth Science. Some of the pieces change quickly. The private sector moves much faster than NASA does. We're, you know, we're a big entity. We do the first of and best of, but we do want to be flexible to, to work with industry and work with you know, commercial space or new space, as it's often called. To, to deliver on the science that the nation needs and that the world needs without breaking the business model for a SpaceX or for a Planet Labs or what have you. So we do want to find those best ways to partner with those companies to leverage what they're good at and leverage what we're good at to continue to evolve our understanding of the Earth as a coupled system, to collect that data that'll allow scientists, policymakers, and others to make the best decisions we can about how, how best to, to live on the earth, to put it simply, and understand those interconnections between, you know, between the atmosphere, the ocean, the ice sheets, the groundwater, the biosphere, and how that all fits together. So what motivates and inspires you to continue pushing the boundaries of knowledge in your field, despite the inevitable setbacks and failures? You know, and it's not even the setbacks and failures that are, that are problematic. Some of those are really interesting because anytime something goes wrong, I, a lot of times we'll be you know, looking at some data from ISAT too. We don't really know what we're looking at, but it's really cool because we're about to learn something and that's the most exciting part. So I really like it when I come across things that are like, that's not what I thought it would be because that means I'm about to get smarter and that's super exciting. And that actually happens a lot because I'm really not that smart and I forget things. I'm like, oh yeah, I used to know this. So that's actually not the challenge. The challenge for me ends up being in the day-to-day. Some of your older podcast listeners will, will maybe appreciate that or understand it a little more than you know just a youngin like yourself. There's all kinds of stuff that happens in, in any career. And, and sometimes it's the little challenges that come up on a particular day. For example, buying things within the government is not simple. There are about a thousand regulations you need to comply with. They change all the time. And doing something that you'd think would be easy is often not that easy. So that that kind of thing, the little bureaucratic hurdles, they can really get you down. And sometimes they get me down as well. Of like, you got to be kidding. You know, I went to school for 22 years and I can't figure out how to buy a printer. I can't be the first person at NASA to ever need to buy a printer. Why is this so hard? 
So that kind of stuff, it's easy to, easy to let it get to you. But, but that's not every day, you know, a lot of times, more often than not, you know, I leave work at the end of the day, confident that I did useful things that day, right? I, just, I solved somebody else's headache or, you know, was able to help talk through a, a problem with somebody maybe in their career choices. They have an option to do this kind of position or that kind of position and help them work through the pros and cons and scenarios and such. And that's always satisfying. And I do like doing things like this, talking to you today. I was recently out at the Boise State University in Boise, Idaho, a couple of weeks ago, meeting with meeting with a group that was working with ISAT2 data, and we've sponsored a project there. But just getting to go talk with students gets you gets me excited again about, yeah, that's right. This stuff is really cool. I forget about that when I'm you know dealing with whatever else comes along, the less interesting parts of my job. But uh, yeah, going to science conferences, talking to people at the beginning of their careers, whether that's science or something else. That that does get me excited about about doing what we do, and it is kind of funny because I meet lots of people who are like, "That's amazing, you know, you work for NASA," and it's like, "Dude, if you knew about TPS reports, you'd be much less excited," because it is at the end of the day a giant government agency. Um, but I do think that it's it's doing important work that we do important work here, and and it's often a lot of fun as well. So this is a question that I ask everyone at the end. I just wanted to know what your one piece of advice would be. Just one piece of advice. Yeah. <laughs> one piece of advice. Oh dear. That's a good one. I've, I guess there's a good, there's a couple. It's interesting. I would often do this to people on their birthdays. It's like, oh, cool. You're turning 17. Do you have any advice on this anniversary, 17th anniversary of your birth and that you've learned in these first 17 years you'd like to share with the world? And sometimes people would really rise to the occasion as something profound to say, but more often than not, it's like, huh, yeah, I don't know. I hadn't really thought about it. So a piece of advice I would give to, I'd give to anyone, I would say it's hard to answer a question like this without coming off as, uh, as pompous or, or too self-important or that sort of thing. But I guess what I would say is uh, life is short that, and sometimes it's hard to appreciate that because you're kind of in the midst of your day to day and you don't always have that appreciation for it. But life is too short to do things you don't like doing. Totally understand that sometimes you end up having to do things you don't like to do. When I was finishing my undergrad, I had my undergrad advisor say, look, you know, as you get older, you're going to have to do things you don't want to do. But you're at that stage of your life. You can do whatever you want. So do whatever you want, which which was really empowering that way. But life is short, and it's too short to end up doing stuff you don't like doing. So if you find yourself stuck somehow or stuck somewhere, it's not too late. You can always pick something up again. My own mother, I was talking with her and and she passed away two years ago, but she was 74 at the time. And she had all these little projects as as most of us do, that some of them get put down for a while. She liked to woodwork, was a woodworker. And she picked up a project that she had set down when she was in college in 1966 and picked it up again in 2016. She's like, I wanted to come back to this. And I just decided today was the day. And I was like, that's awesome. That's super cool. So it's not too late to change things if you're in, in uh, some situation that you're just really not enjoying, whether it's work-wise or otherwise. But it's, and I've also found that, if I can build on that a little more, that people who are in jobs they genuinely enjoy just do a better job than somebody who's in it and just doesn't really like it. I found that over and over again. Like with ISAT2, we're a team of about 50 that run the mission and generate the data and calibrate it and all that sort of thing. And I've always 
mindful of checking in with people like, how's it going? How are you enjoying things? Because when people are fired up and excited about doing what they're doing, that's just the best, you know, because then they're really excited, enthusiastic. They really bring their own talents to it in a way that just doesn't if it's like, oh, yeah, well, I need you to do this thing. And too bad. I don't care if you don't like it. I totally get that kind of thing happens as well. But to the extent that you can do what you love. That's a great piece of advice. And I want to thank you so much for your time and your insights. I have really enjoyed this conversation. Likewise. And hopefully you get get something good out of it. Thank you for listening. If you learned something, be sure to share this with a friend that could use it. My name's Charlie Hubbard, and this has been Professional Profiles.